This is Growth Institute, an attempt at going deeper. Um, I'm going to try to refrain from preaching and actually do some dialogue. Um, so at some point, uh, you know, Julie is going to interrupt me if I uh, go on a 10-minute monologue. Um, there's a countdown timer that uh, I must stop and say, does anybody have any questions? All right, now let's continue. Uh, if I ask it quick enough, we'll be okay. But uh, I want to talk about why we're doing what we're doing. Uh, future weeks, we will rotate through uh, who is doing the teaching in here. I believe next week, Pastor Jacob's teaching, then I'm back up, then Sam's up, then Pastor Jacob for a few weeks, and then I'm back up for a, a little bit. So, um, so our attempt with Growth Institute and our desire is to help you grow as a disciple by sharpening some skills, sharpening skills in some key areas that we have identified that we feel like are important for your own understanding of the things of the faith and the reproduction of leaders uh, and maturing disciples. So the goal is to go deeper uh, on some things that we feel, feel like are important to go deeper on, deeper than we would normally go, certainly in a sermon, um, and for us to do some dialogue um, on some topics in particular. So the Growth Institute exists to help us grow as disciples by sharpening skills. It is laid out to walk through four specific disciplines or areas. Those areas are Bible survey and hermeneutics. Uh, hermeneutics is the art and science of studying the Bible. We'll do Bible survey and hermeneutics stuff. We will do systematic theology, which is what we're doing this fall. We will do church history, and we will do practical theology. Um, and... That, that's four different seminars that will be offered or four different areas that will be offered on a two-year rotation. Um, but we'll take a different approach in each one of those disciplines. So, for example, this year, if you're looking at your schedule, year one, uh, this fall, we're doing systematic theology, but doing the doctrine of God and revelation. In year three, we will do systematic theology, the doctrine of humanity and salvation. Um, so... Uh, and then that pops up again in year five with the doctrine of the church and last things. So that's the systematic side of things. Uh, you've got hermeneutics, uh, the art in the overview of hermeneutics in the spring. Uh, two years out, you have ethics and, or sorry, in that one, you've got two years out. You've got Old Testament studies, I believe. Um, and then beyond that, you have New Testament studies. So... Um, so that's kind of where we're going with the loose six-year plan. There's no guarantee that we complete the six-year plan in six years. We may complete it in less time. We may not complete it. We may complete it in more time. But we wanted to lay it out on a two-year basis. So this is uh, Pastor Jacob's brainchild with a lot of feedback from me. And he is the one that has laid out these topics that you see there for what we're going to do this semester in Systematic, the Doctrine of God and Revelation. Um, and so he's laid out those 14 weeks. That gives us one extra week before uh, we would normally end the semester, which will allow us either to take a week to go deeper, a week to have a weather or virus uh, cancellation or anything else, or just get done a week early, which is not likely to occur with pastors doing things. Getting done early is not normally an option. So um, but that is that. Um, I want to ask a question because I'm pushing the monologue thing. Uh, why do we study theology? So I've walked through the six-year growth plan. I'm not planning on looking back at that now. If you're following on, trying to follow along, I'm done with that one. 
and I'm starting to use your note handout at this point. Why do we study theology? If we really want to grow and go deeper and develop as disciples, why would we not just start with application? What's wrong? There's some things that are right about application, but what is wrong with us coming up here and starting with a series of things that we should do in our Christian faith? Why should we not just start with things we do? Feedback from the audience. We need to know the why. Yep. We need to know the why. And as a parent, it's often valuable to communicate the why because even if if you understand the why, even if I didn't give you every possible scenario, maybe you can faithfully extrapolate to your given scenario from the why that you do know. Okay. I think there's something else that we need to consider as well. I think that's a great thing to consider, but other reasons. What are some other reasons why we don't want to just start with things to do? As you said, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart, so if you get our heart right through the application. Yep, the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart, and we need to aim for the heart, and I would say the head as well. Um, the heart and the head go very well together. Um, and our application needs to flow from the heart, not a legalistic obedience. This may be what Lerone already said, but we need to know how to read God's word and come up with our own application, not just have someone tell us how we should apply it. Yes. So the goal of reproducing disciples involves them being able to grow as disciples on their own and not just be fed from others. Um, And the tools that we will use particularly for hermeneutics are valuable for that. We need to know the who. I I think, you know, we could probably put put it this way. We need to know the why and we need to know the who. Um, And I do want you to know how to reproduce as disciples. Um, I am immensely, try to be immensely practical, um, but we need to know the who and we need to know the why. Um, If you've got your Bible, go ahead and navigate. I left mine somewhere, so I'm going to have to do the electronic thing and find my Bible before Sunday arrives. Um, You're welcome to use one of those. I'm going to use my phone for this. Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 7, and then I'm going to skip down to verse 20 or so. You know, this week, Lily and I have been navigating through some challenging decisions uh, that require prayer, that require wisdom, um, and that reflect on how, as we reflect on how our world is functioning, at times I'm just sitting back saying, God, I just really want to like three-step or here's exactly what you need to do. Here's exactly what I want. And here's the application. Um, and sometimes God gives us the direct application. But often I found that he gives us wisdom um, and he gives us direction for, about himself. And that then through his spirit, he personalizes that to a given situation. But Proverbs 1.7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. 
but it is fools that despise wisdom and instruction. It is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of knowledge. If we're going to grow deeper as disciples, it should be in knowing who God is that we might fear and honor and respect and glorify him correctly. Um, if we're going to study, we, we need to study theology to know the why and the who, and the appropriate starting point for true wisdom for true wisdom on how to live in the world. In the Hebrew culture, the wisdom was not about just what you know in your head. It was about what you show in your life. But the appropriate starting point for wise living in our world is the knowledge of God. We get down to verse 20, and you see that wisdom personified here, wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you because I've called and you refuse to listen. I've stretched out my hand and no one is heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and have none of my reproof, I will laugh at your calamity and mock when terror strikes you. As I begin these words from verse 20, wisdom cries aloud in the street and raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. As I look on our world right now, I don't hear the loudest voice that is echoing the most significantly is not that of wisdom. I mean, whether, it, whether it's news that you don't know what to believe, whether it is um, the voices of those that shout the loudest, very rarely shout the wise things. Um, and there's a lot of places that we can go to find folly and foolishness. And yet God is telling us here that wisdom also cries aloud and invites us to listen. And we're going to talk more in the coming weeks about how we can know God because he has chosen to make himself known. We, God could have created the world in a way that he did not make himself known as the guy behind the scenes who never is seen. And yet revelation, the revelation of himself in creation and in his word reveals a God who desires to be known. Not a God who desires to be hidden, but a God who desires to be known. And here we see that it is wisdom crying out. What is wisdom? The fear of God. Putting God in right in his rightful place is something that cries out to us in his word that we might know him. So we want to study a God who wants to be studied. We have a God who wants to be made known. We have a God who doesn't make himself obscure and difficult to find, but who wants to be made known in creation and in revelation. Or, as we'll talk about in two, weeks, two and three weeks out, in natural revelation and in special revelation. We have a God who wants to be made known. And so we study a God who wants to be made known. And the way that we're going to do that in this course is by following a discipline called systematic theology. How many of you have taken a formal theology class at a Bible college or something like I know some of you have, or audited a course or something like that. Raise your hand again. Okay. Sizable number. New Testament studies. New Testament survey, yeah. So 
a, a decent portion of the room, okay? Some of you are familiar with the terms we're going to use. I'm going to try to remind, uh, try to use the terms appropriately according to their academic discipline while remembering to define them. Systematic theology is a stream of Christian theology. There's, there's some people would say five streams. Uh, I lean towards four. Uh, we can ask Pastor Jacob. Jacob, do you th- say four or five? Do you do exegesis as its own stream or not? Four. Okay, there are four streams. Jacob says it and I say it, it is absolutely official. All right. Four major streams of Christian theology. You can cite me on that one forever, okay? First major stream of Christian theology or four branches that flow into Christian theology is biblical theology, okay? Biblical theology is a discipline that looks through the unfolding of the pages of Scripture or throughout the Bible. When you hear biblical theology, think about the ways things are traced. A theme can be traced from cover to cover. Or, for example, the story of the Bible from creation to new creation would be an exercise in biblical theology. You could look at the progression of a theme, like God's dwelling among men from creation to new creation. Let's, let's talk about that for a minute. Where do we see God dwelling among men? How does his dwelling among men happen in the beginning of the Bible? Walks in the garden with mankind. Is it a permanent dwelling? Not for Adam and Eve. Eve. And it doesn't appear like he's just hanging out with them all the time. He's not there. Adam doesn't say, God was with me when she gave me this. So it doesn't seem to be a present. All right, now let's walk through. What's the next mark of God's dwelling among people through the pages of Scripture? Okay, he does dwell temporarily through the pillar and through the cloud. And he allows Moses to come into his presence in the tent. So we have the tabernacle, which is representative of God's dwelling among men in the Old Testament. Okay. Where does it move to next after the tabernacle? The temple represented God's presence. But could anybody be in there all the time? No. So people weren't dwelling with God. And was God, you know, dwelling among men? Not really among men. His presence is through the tabernacle was seen, but God wasn't dwelling among men. All right, what's next? Jesus, who did dwell among men. Emmanuel, God with us, but not permanently, and not all people, and not all believers. Okay, what's next? Holy Spirit. Spirit. I led you to that one. Good. All right, Holy Spirit dwells among all believers, but we are not physically in the presence of God in a way that we experience his goodness in that sense all the time, as we will see at the end of the Bible in the new creation, where God's dwelling will be among men, and they will see him. Okay. So if you want to do an exercise in biblical theology, you could trace the dwelling of God among men as an exercise of biblical theology from Genesis to Revelation. That is where biblical theology is concerned with that, the theme of sacrifice. You could do the same thing with sacrifice in Genesis 3. God provides a sacrifice. You can go to Genesis 22. God provides a sacrifice in place of Isaac. You can look at the Passover. God provides a sacrifice, the sacrificial system. You can look all the way through pages of Scripture how Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, the sacrifice. You can do that. Biblical theology is concerned with the continuity and the discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Biblical theology teaches us to read the whole Bible as Christian Scripture. And it is often historically organized to look at the development of themes across time. Okay. Historical theology. What is historical theology is a second major stream. All right. Historical theology is typically the study of theology across time. 
and place with a significant emphasis on people, significant theologians and leaders. So Pastor Jacob is a PH, is doing a PhD in historical theology with a dissertation on John Owen and some of his thoughts. Okay. Historical theology is concerned with the development of theology across time and place, including the study of significant theologians. Systematic theology, what we're doing this fall, the study of subjects or systematizing and developing a system and a categorization of subjects. I think of systematic theology as the same way that I do filing papers in my desk. What file does this go in that I can build a comprehensive file that separates my business meeting stuff from my committee stuff, from my finance stuff, from my personnel and my supervision of staff. I've got a filing system in my desk that holds physical files, and I think of systematic theology as a filing system for the different branches and studies and doctrines. Um, It's a study of particular subjects of theology, insights from biblical theology. You cannot do systematic theology without the Bible. Okay, that's a problem. And it has insights from historical theology in mind. We don't operate in a vacuum when we study the doctrine of salvation. We're not the first people ever to approach this question. Okay? Systematic theology organizes the Bible's teaching by topics and themes. It builds on biblical theology, but whereas biblical theology is historically organized, systematic theology is topically organized. Okay. Biblical theology is historically organized and looks at developments over the pages of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Systematic theology is organized by topic. So, biblical or historical theology? Both of them are historically organized, but historical theology looks at the key figures in history and the key th- the way people have articulated doctrine and theology. Biblical theology is largely concerned with the development of a theme from Genesis to Revelation. Historical takes up from Pentecost all the way through to present, and we can do historical studies on people from 10 years ago. Um, systematic builds on those things, but it's all about the topics. I was... Well, you know, I was giving you a topic of temple and sacrifice or dwelling earlier and tracing that from cover to cover, whereas we might talk about the doctrine of salvation and how do we see salvation. Well, we can't do that without the Bible, but we don't necessarily want to trace how salvation looks from Genesis to Revelation. We may organize it in a way that seems more convenient for our understanding of it on the basis of how we see it in the Bible. Um, There's some blurred lines in biblical versus systematic. Um, Applied theology. It is the best one. Um, It is the formation of discipline and application. My PhD is in applied theology. My, one of my mentors at the beginning of my PhD studies and our studies with the applied theology told us that uh, historically, that the applied theology PhD is the most prestigious and advanced and difficult to attain because it means that you have, ha- that you have done all of the other ones. So I'm not going to say that I'm smarter than Pastor Jacob, but somebody that's smarter than me said it. So, 
All right, applied theology rolls it all in together and looks at discipline and application with all of those things in mind. Um, so my PhD looked at church revitalization. Program was church revitalization and planting as an application of both biblical, historical, and systematic theology. Um, and it weds the other disciplines in together. By the way, these are all related and they all interact with each other. And we all have ways that we may prefer to do things. My preference is to operate in biblical theology and applied theology. My preference is not to operate in historical and, the and systematic. Jacob, your preference is historical followed by systematic. Yes. Yeah. So, and I don't know exactly where Sam's are, Sam's are, are going to lie, um, but my preference is to operate primarily in applied. So that's what's going to be neat about us walking through some of these things together. So, um, overview there. There, there's different doctrines. You're going to see them out, laid out in the, um, like the six-year plan. Different topics and doctrines of systematic theology. These are broken down differently. I'm borrowing from uh, Daniel Aiken's systematic theology textbook on this. Um, there's the doctrine of revelation, which is not revelations, by the way. Um, we're not doing revelations. Um, we're not quoting tombstone um, or anything else. It is revelation, meaning how God has revealed himself. So we're not doing last things and the book of Revelation until the end, but we'll talk about Revelation and how God has revealed himself actually at the foundational level for systematic theology in the coming weeks. There's the doctrine of God, which is theology proper. Um, there's the doctrine of humanity, doctrine of Christ, doctrine of the Spirit, doctrine of salvation, doctrine of the church, doctrine of the last things, and others divide them differently. So why would we do, and why in most studies, not all, but why is the doctrine of revelation, why do you think the doctrine of revelation is placed before the doctrine of God in our study outline? All right, how God revealed himself. He has to be revealed. We can't start, like, what do you know about God? Well, we have a God who revealed himself. Well, how did he reveal himself? Well, let's talk about how he's revealed himself, and then we'll talk about what he has revealed himself. But if he hadn't revealed himself, we can't know what he is like. But because he has revealed himself, we're going to study how he revealed himself, and then we will study what he is like. Um, so the way that, now we could say we're starting with God because we have a God, God who has revealed himself. So the first point is God has revealed himself. Now let's talk about how he's revealed himself, and now we'll talk about other things about him. You can go either way, which is why I think you, you can see some, 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 create, uh, some organizations that will do that, but that's that's why we are going overview, basically, the heart of the matter for next week, the posture of our theology, systematic theology next week, and then we're going to shift towards Revelation. Um, all right. You got a big quote from A.W. Tozer there. Uh, how many of you have read Tozer's Knowledge of the Holy? Okay. Pieces. It's a short book. It's not a light book, but it's a short book. So... Um, what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us, according to Tozer. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, 
Man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate no religion has been greater than its idea of God. Our current culture's idea of God and religion is self and self-pleasure and self-esteem. And that is our view of God that is prevailing in our culture right now is I am God, I must serve myself. And I serve myself however I desire at any given moment. There is no God that takes authority over me. I am my own God. Um, and there, there's lots of flaws with that, but our culture is revolving around the worship of self as in place of God in many cases. He goes on to say worship is either pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. Or if you have the wrong God, it's absolutely base, I add. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. So the most important question is not what do we do. The most important question is who is God. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what any given time he may say or do, but what in his deep heart he conceives God to be like. I like Tozer. I like his question. I like, I like it for an apologetics and applied uh, theology aspect and an evangelism aspect even when we get into uh, that type of thing. You know, what comes to mind when you think about God and using that as an engagement point? Who do you say God is and what is God like? Is there, do you believe that there is a God who should have the authority to tell you what is right or wrong? Well, how does he communicate his authority? Um, is God, is the God that you have in your mind a good God? Is he good all the time or only sometimes? If he's good all the time, what he speaks is that good as well. What comes to mind when a man thinks about God is the most important thing about him, according to Tozer, but not according to C.S. Lewis. So that's in your homework to look at why Lewis disagrees with Tozer, although he is before Tozer, at least in the writing of this. But So he's using it where either somebody was saying it before him or in a different circumstance. But he says, what comes to mind, I've heard it said that what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you, but I'm going to tell you it's something else. So you have a Homework assignment this week to reflect on the two of them and where you disagree and where you agree with Lewis or Tozer. And I don't care how much you write on it. By the way, homework in here, the preparation stuff, we're probably going to talk about next week. Um, in general, whoever's lecturing the following week will be offering the preparation materials in your homework. Um, the reflection material, like, I, so I, I've drafted the reflection material Jacob may lead us in a brief discussion of that next week, um, but the, the homework is largely for your own good, and we're going to offer some suggestions on how to go further if you want to go further. Um, but we're not going to probably come in and say, hey, let's, let's unpack and talk about all the homework. Um, but the preparation stuff is, you know, if you're only going to do one, often the preparation is more valuable um, than the reflection for getting ready for the next class. So this week you had no... Reflection, uh, or so no, no preparation, so we're starting at a different level. But, all right, Tozer versus Lewis later. All right, I am borrowing the next, uh, these four matters things from the core seminars from another church called Capitol Hill Baptist Church in the district. Uh, they have made these widely available. Um, our resources for this class are available on the website. We're going to put our note packet up, but at this point we don't plan on putting our manuscript up. Um, if you want to go deeper or if you want to look at something, by all means, I am unabashedly uh, using their material, which they give rights to churches to use um, and to modify as desired. Um, and without even giving you the credit that I actually give to them, but I felt like it was appropriate to say, hey, this isn't, 
this is a lot of somebody else with some personalization of JSON. Okay? So, uh, why study systematic theology? What are the benefits? Okay? I, I want to ask you guys that. Um, I've laid out what systematic theology is. What are some benefits that you could see coming from studying it? Other than making your pastors happy because you're here for class or watching online and letting us know. You can do some research on the topic you want to research. It reveals the sovereignty of God in the way in which he communicates strategically um, and doesn't change or defy himself. He doesn't change in that way. Um, By the way, the Bible is not written as a systematic theology textbook. It isn't written. When you open Genesis 1-1, it does not say in the beginning, before the beginning, there was a God, and here's what he's like, and here is the way in which he created and, but first, let me tell you more about him. The Bible is not a systematic theology textbook. It does not start sequentially with here is God and here's what Revelation is like. The Bible is a story of God's interaction with humanity and him teaching about himself. Right? Um, so the Bible is not a systematic theology textbook, which makes it hard at times. What do you mean? How do we reconcile that that Jesus died on the cross, is his death for all people? Or is it for all who will believe? Well, you've got some texts that seem to support different things. That gets into that classic Arminianism-Calvinism debate. Is man responsible for choosing God, or is God responsible for choosing man? Well, some people think the Bible answers that very clearly. Others do not see it as clear of an answer. Um, the Bible is not a systematic theology text, whereas these are systematic theology questions. So it can let you go deeper on an area that the Bible has intrigued you on. Okay. Anybody else want to jump in? Benefit and gain of systematic theology? Yeah, biblical. It does. It is easier to bridge into the realm of lived-out faith from systematic than it is from some of the other, from biblical or historical. Um, And God is concerned with our head, our heart, and our hands. He is not concerned with two. He's concerned with three. Not concerned with one, head, heart, and hands. Um, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Yeah, I 
at times will blur the way that I use topic and theme. So I will, that will not be helpful with me. I will not consistently use them separately or to mean the same thing because I'm inconsistent in that. Um, unfortunately, I will not. Uh, there will be times that I will, that I will blur that. Um, although systematic is much more about topic and biblical is much more about theme. Yeah, systematic uh, allows you to get where to know where to go, what has been discussed, the way that things have developed. So uh, there's some value there um, for discussing with others. Uh, I, I want to give you four things that I or four areas that they've brought out, and I agree with these. There are ways in which we study systematic theology for God's glory, remembering that our chief end is enjoying God um, and glorifying Him. God created us for His glory. And whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we do all for the glory of God. And that includes studying systematic theology. We study systematic theology to glorify God as we seek to know him. And when you think about some of Paul's prayers for the church, his prayers are that they know God. His prayers are for their holiness as well. But he prays in Philippians 1, 9 and following he yearns for them. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more all knowledge and discernment to approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Paul says in Philippians 3 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Um, in Ephesians 3, we see the call to, to know and the prayer to know the breadths and lengths and the heights and the depths of the love of God. Um, so we study systematic theology for God's glory. The goal of studying systematic theology is to know God better and learn how we might please him through living a life of holiness according to his power. Corporately, together as a church, we study the systematic theology to be an accurate reflection of God to the world. If we had no systematic theology, we don't, you know, we're, right now we're doing this in a particular class, but systematic theology is concerned with our doctrine and our understanding of truth. If we had no understanding of doctrine or truth, we would not reflect Christ very well to the world. We would not know what to reflect. We would not know how to reflect God. We would not be able to be unified in, this, in the gospel. So systematic theology allows us to grow as a church body in our holiness and our maturity that we might not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and every craftiness and deceit of man, according to Ephesians 4. It helps us grow corporately to be the body that he has. It helps us to be able to answer or give a reason for the hope that we have in us, according to 1 Peter 3, 15. And it's through the body of Christ, the church, that is the manifold witness of God made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. So, yes, there's an individual aspect, but it actually pertains to what, who, how we grow as a church as well. All right? Individually. What, why do we study it individually for our individual sanctification and our individual growth? That we might be sanctified and grow in our faith. We don't want to just know about God as if he could only be known at a distance. We actually want to personally know God and have a relationship with him. Personally, having the fear of the Lord is that beginning point of knowledge 
as well. Individual growth and truth fuels worship. Sam has talked about revelation and response numerous times. Revelation, God reveals himself and we respond to that worshipfully. So if our worship is shallow, it's often because our understanding of God is shallow. So we grow in our response of worship as we, and in our spiritual growth by getting a grand view of God. Fourthly, we study systematic theology because doctrine and truth matter. Not everything can be true. And we grow being taught to obey all that Christ has commanded us, according to Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And that means growing in our knowledge of who God is. That also means that we need to understand God. We need to understand who he is and how we might live. Uh, We don't get to just make up God as if he is a figment of our imagination. We don't get to imagine him to be the way that we want him to be, okay? Paul warned Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, that people actually would do that. And we certainly see that in our culture. Paul told Timothy, the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And in this case, they will listen to only those that tell them what they want to hear. In our world, that is very normal. Not putting up with any doctrine about God. It's our temptation as fallen humanity to make God out like us. To think of him as we think of ourselves. It's It's our tendency to pick and choose as if God is a lunch buffet that we can go by and pick some of this and I want some of this. All right, God is not that way. He's much more like eating dinner in our house, okay? You get what's on your plate and that's what you have. You don't get to pick what you have about God. We give you. God has given us of himself and we do not change him. The Bible, that means when the Bible talks about God's wrath, though we might not pick it, it's true and God talks about it, so we need to understand it. The Bible describes God as Trinitarian, so we need to discuss it. The Bible talks about depravity, so we need to understand it and talk about it. We don't get to pick and choose truth. We don't get to pick and choose doctrine about God. A doctrine matters not only in what we live, but in why we live and who we understand God to be. All right, so recap. We study it for God's glory, to corporately reflect Christ to others, for individual sanctification and growth, and because doctrine matters. As we do so, there's some key features and some ways that complement each other that we should keep in mind. Okay. Systematic theology is four key features. First, it should be biblically grounded. Okay. Biblically grounded. Every worldview has a rule, it has a standard, it has a final court of appeals for determining what is true. Okay. Right now, in our culture, what do you believe is the final source of authority for people? Majority person, give me an example off the street. What is the final source of authority? How I feel. 
Okay? I, I think that is the most significant source of authority for most people, how I feel. Well, I don't feel like God could be wrathful. So, okay. I don't feel this way. In many cases in our world right now, the most common is feel. What are some other possible sources of authority, though? Bible, we've got that one. Okay, you got Bible, you got feeling. I'm going to tell you there's some more, though. Yep, news or things that they consider to be facts. Tom? Yep, science. Experience. Yep, that's what my experience has told me, which is somewhat close to feeling, but, you know, sometimes it... Feeling's not even based on experience. It's just, you know, where it's at. Okay. Anything else? We're missing one because we don't do this one very well in America. A little bit from the authorities, what somebody tells me. Tradition. That's the way it's been. This is a you know, classic church motto. Sometimes we do it in the church world. It's always been that way, therefore it must. But other cultures in the world, well, my grandparents were Buddhist. Therefore, I have to honor them by maintaining that tradition. The source of authority is the tradition that has been passed down from generation to generation or the historical progression. Okay? We don't normally do that, particularly in Baptist life. Um, there is a school of thinking developed by Wesley called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. It talks about four sources of authority that many Christians use. And the way that we see the, the Wesleyan Quadrilateral is mainly about Christians' understanding of, of four sources of authority. For, it includes the Bible. It includes reason and what makes sense, somewhat similar to the science thing uh, that you were referencing. What, what makes sense about God? How does this make sense? The reason, the rationality of things can be a source of authority. Tradition. What Christian group is most prone, I'll use Christian pretty broadly there, most prone to rely primarily on tradition? Catholicism. Ding, ding, ding. For them, in many cases, tradition is more important than biblical authority. Okay? The fourth one I didn't give you. Uh, so Bible, reason, tradition, experience. And I, we can lump in for that one. I think Wesley was doing it today. He might say experience and feelings. So, and he might even use a funny high-pitched voice when he talks about feelings. Okay? I don't know. Maybe not, but. All right. What branch within Christianity is more prone to rely on experience? Or what is a church that looks like relying on experience and feeling, not in saying the Bible isn't true, but that relies on that more significantly? What does that look like? Is there a group that comes to mind? Pentecostal. Pentecostal. Yep. By and large, the Pentecostal movement is marked by placing experience as their primary source of authority. Not always. Very close to the Bible. But they interpret the Bible in many cases on the basis of experience. Stating in many cases that the Bible is supreme, but interpreted it on the basis of experience more significantly than Bible. Okay. Reason can go very much like the intellectual side of things. Um, so I would suggest that the primary source of authority ought to be Scripture. Um, 
and that we want to try to maintain that. But we need to recognize that the others play a role. We need to be biblically informed, but those others do play a role. History plays a role. Historical theology and tradition plays a role in your understanding of the Bible. You did not come into it out of a vacuum. Your experience plays a role and comes into play. It is something that you have to keep in mind. Otherwise, it blinds you to things. Reason plays a role. Reason plays a very significant role in systematic theology. Okay. So, four sources, primary sources, authority, according to Wesley and Quadrilateral, Bible, reason, tradition, experience. And by and large, that's a good question to ask somebody. If you want to have an engaging, practical discussion with somebody, what, what is your primary source of authority in life? Is it what Facebook told you? Is it what you found on the news media? Is it how you feel? What's your primary source of authority and Why? Why do you give that permission to be authoritative in your life? It's a good question to get to know somebody at a deep level, okay? But as we do systematic theology, we need to be biblically grounded. The teaching of the Bible as the inspired and errant word of God is authoritative for faith and life. So if the Bible says it and we, under, we want to strive to understand it, and we're not going to contradict that even if that contradicts our experience or feelings, I often used to tell students, like, if you're going to place a th- feelings and experience in first place, you need to recognize how many times have you cried at a movie that wasn't even based on a true story? How many times did you get scared when the person jumps out and scares you in a scary movie and there was actually nothing to even be scared of or it's like a comical thing? Our body has and our brains have reactions to feelings and experiences all the time that are not real. I am very weary of following my feelings and experience on the basis of the fact that I can, no, I don't cry at movies, but that other people cry at movies. How dare you follow your feelings when you can cry at something that's not even real? Our experience is a great trickster. Um, scripture is not, but scripture is, if our views of scripture are often informed by experience, okay? Not only do we need to be biblically grounded, we need to be historically informed, Again, we're not going to take back seat to historical tradition. What the church has believed can be wrong. But it also can aid us in discussion on systematic theology. Third, we need to be contextually aware. Contextually aware of the timeline and where this falls in the context of the Bible, but also contextually aware of our own context. And the questions being raised in our own context. When we do systematic theology, we keep the Bible in mind, the context of a passage in the Bible in mind. We are informed by the, uh, by the historical and the tradition. But we also, we ask questions of our day of systematic theology. So, for example, it is appropriate within systematic theology, not just applied theology, to talk about what it means to be male and female in our world. It's appropriate within systematic theology and the doctrine of man and humanity to consider whether one gender or race is more important than another. Those are questions that are being raised in our context that we can look at from a systematic theological angle. Those are appropriate things to do, and not just in the realm of applied, but that is where it starts blurring the lines of systematic and applied. But we ask questions of our culture as we study 
a, a, the topic, I'm going to use it right, not the theme, topic, um, that we're in. And then last, worshipfully applied. Contextually aware and worshipfully applied. And Jacob's going to talk about more about that next week. But our theology's got to be lived out. Dead orthodoxy is not true orthodoxy. A dead heart with a great mind is still a great struggle before God and offensive to God. In Revelation 3.1, John wrote, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. We don't want to just know God with our minds. We need to worship him with our minds, our hearts, and our hands. True theology is a living theology. It should strengthen our faith and impact our worship through song and through good deeds that Christ has possessed us for and the Spirit has empowered us to be passionate about according to Titus 2 and 3, starting from last week and then for my next sermon I'm going to preach. Okay? Theology leads to worship not only through song but through good deeds. So any systematic theology that we do needs to be biblically grounded, historically informed, contextualized, and lived out. All right, before we start talking about some other stuff, questions or comments so far? Anything you want me to repeat? Anything you want me to clarify? Any question that you have on what we have covered? Yeah, more so what's going on around. Let's ask the questions of our day to this text, but we also need to be aware of the culture, the context that we were communicating, the Bible's communicating in. That blurs into that exegesis. You can't really do biblical theology and understand a text without understanding the context. Um, but I am using this primarily to say we ask questions of our day of the Bible. And most of these things are being broken out according to the way that I have organized this. I have done an exercise in systematic theology by developing this outline um, and by using and personalizing an outline of somebody else. So um, it reflects my own understanding of this discipline and this stream of theology. So there's others that would say, hey, you know, contextually aware. Yeah, you need to be aware of context. And they mean that to say you need to be aware of the context of the Bible alone. Um, I believe when Capitol Hill was using this, they actually were leaning this almost only of the modern side. And I wanted to add in, and I've reworded it a little bit, and I've added in that we need to be aware of the culture of the Bible and the context of it too. Um, I've emphasized a little bit of both, whereas they were much more narrower to the questions of our day. But if, so if you were to go and to take a, uh, it, what I'm trying to say here is if you were to take this material, digest it, understand it, and then were to take a systematic theology course in a very similar thing at another church or at a institution and regurgitate the answers I have given you, you would have to defend them well because your instructor might break this down differently than I have. There's some pretty general consensus within Christian theology that you should be biblically grounded and worshipfully applied, but they may use different terms to reflect the same concepts or add another one in or subtract one out. And then historically 
It would be typically historically informed or tradition would refer to post-biblical times, typically. So the early church after the canon was closed. Um, because otherwise it would fall in the realm of biblical, not revealed in the Bible. Jacob's question being, where is, a, where is it really valuable to consider the historical? Um, as Baptists, we don't like to do that, um, except for when it's convenient for how we do church, because we've always done it that way. Um, you're putting me on the spot. And I don't, do you have one in mind that you think would be really valuable to bring out right now? Yeah. I think you're right. It can definitely aid in our uh, understanding of the canon of Scripture. Um, I think it adds, the, for me, the biggest thing that I typically gain from historically informed is humility. To recognize that some really smart people have talked about this before. I'm not the first one to come to this problem. And I'm not the first one to come up probably with the solution that I have to this supposed problem. And if the really smart people in some of these cases are still trying to figure out the differences in it, there's a good chance that my, hey, I have the absolute solution that you need to follow me on this one. Um, If people have been debating it for 300 years, there's a good chance that I'm not going to resolve it through my perfect understanding and articulation of it. So for me... The, my most significant thing gained in systematic theology by historical awareness is humility. Because I tend to be really arrogant otherwise. I think I have great ideas. Yeah, Spurgeon's absolutely in historical theology. Um, I, I, I don't know how recent you can call it historical theology. Jacob might, since he knows the discipline. Um, I mean, I would be comfortable with calling anything pre-2000 at this point historical theology. Um, also, some of the early church creeds. Yep, early church creeds uh, certainly pertain to historical theology. And we're going to do a couple of different seminars on just walking through church history. Um, we'll walk through church history uh, pre-Reformation, post-Reformation, and then we're going to do some time in Baptist history in the post-Reformation. We'll actually do missions history. Um, as well, the history of the church and missions. So. so what about people like, uh, people who are martyrs for the faith? Does that fall under historic theology? Are talking more of an individual than the church as a 
you could do it under church history. You could do it under missions history. Um, you could do it in many cases, some of those that, I mean, I think of our Baptist, if we want to do it from a Baptist historical figure angle, many of the early Baptists were martyrs. Yeah, I'll help you be baptized and not come back up. Yeah, you could put Alottie Moon in a historical theology and look at her theology that drove her mission. Um, normally, she's going to be put more in the missions because that's what she's most known for. But there's, this, there's not nice and neat and tidy categories. And this is why I say it's like a filing system that you have at your house. I have a filing system for, you know, at our home called Present Financial, and then I have one that has our housing bills in it. What, where are those separated? Well, they're separated in my mind. Lily can't find it and look at it in my filing system and say exactly which one it belongs in. Now, the one that says van info is probably on the van. But could you put that in current financial? Well, by all means. Like, there's, you have a filing system. There's some bad, you know, there's some rules the way you organize things, there's some ways that things are traditionally organized in academic disciplines. What's most important is that we learn them and that you have a way of understanding and kind of grabbing the file and pulling things, not that you learn how we file things. So that's one of the dangers of this is that you start filing things the exact same way we do. Um, I'm okay if you want to call Lottie Moon church history or if you want to call her missions history, or if you want to call her historical theology and understand the theology that she had and the way that it led to her life application. It wouldn't, that's not the most consistent with most academic disciplines at this point, um, but it's reasonable. So. Also, history can tell you what was bad theology. Yep, history can give you bad theology. Right. Know, wasn't from God and was right. a bad idea, you know. So you can get something the negatives to mm-hmm. out easy from church history from how that turned out. Yeah. But who told you that was bad? It's all in which historical theolo- it's all in which theological branch you but it goes back to the Bible. But you are correct. In many cases we can look at church history and say this was bad. Um Many cases we look at church history and say because they did it, it was good. That is not necessarily the case. It is just as possible that the church in the 300s got something wrong as the church today. Just because it's ancient doesn't mean it's right. Okay, let, let's look at the Corinthian church. Let's be real here. You know, Corinthian church, man, they were biblical. They got a lot wrong. Okay, but we can learn from history. Classes.